You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For September 6, 2017, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. You wouldn't know it from the oversimplified coverage of the subject, but the climate models used by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, are a very complex web of multiple kinds of modeling, multiple modeling tools, and multiple approaches to various subjects, which are used by scientists in all sorts of different domains. In episode 49 with Justin Ritchie, we learned a bit about how the resource concentration pathways, or RCP scenarios, are constructed, and what they assume about the future, and why the RCP 8.5 scenario, often billed as a business-as-usual scenario, is actually a worst-case business-as-usual scenario, which, in my personal opinion, is absurd, because it assumes a tenfold increase in global coal consumption this century. I concluded that discussion with Justin harboring a bit of hope that perhaps another layer of the modeling framework known as the Shared Socioeconomic Pathways, or SSPs, would offer a more realistic view of the future of energy and might even include a modern view of energy transition. But my subsequent study of those scenarios still left me wishing for something more realistic. Still, climate modeling is very much a work in progress, and ongoing efforts to combine RCPs and SSPs in models known as Integrated Assessment Models, or IMs, may yet produce a view of the future of our climate that not only reflects what we know about today's trends in energy, but that also might hold more hope for a successful mitigation of global warming than has been typically thought. This complex web of modeling work is extremely hard to understand, partly because there really aren't any good introductions to it, at least none that I've found. So for this sixth part of our mini-series on climate science, I follow Justin's suggestion that we get an expert from the National Center on Atmospheric Research, or NCAR, which is based here in Boulder, to come on the show and explain how the SSPs and IMs work. And that guest is Dr. Bastian van Rauven, a project scientist with the Integrated Assessment Modeling Group at NCAR. My ability to pronounce Dutch is poor, to be generous, so we'll just go with his nickname, Bas. Bas's research interests cover a wide range of topics, from energy and technology scenarios to energy transitions in developing countries. His current work focuses on global IMs modeling and on energy impacts of climate change, and he has contributed to several IM comparison projects. He was a lead author for UNEP's Global Environmental Outlook 4 and the Global Energy Assessment. He represents NCAR on the Scientific Steering Committee of the Integrated Assessment Modeling Consortium, and he co-chairs the working group on future scenarios for impacts, adaptation, and vulnerability indicators of the International Committee on New Integrated Climate Change Assessment Scenarios. He's one of the most knowledgeable experts I could hope to find on the subject, and it's a real privilege to have him on the show. Then in the news segment, we'll talk about West Virginia's latest hope to revive its dying coal industry, an exciting new wind farm project in Turkey, a groundbreaking V2G pilot project in Europe, 
and an update on India's declining coal sector. But first, our interview with Boss. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Boss, to the Energy Transition Show. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for having me. That's really cool. Cool. So this is a very complex subject, and instead of just starting from the beginning, I think I'm going to assume that listeners have already absorbed the previous episodes and just dive right in. So in episode 49 with Justin Ritchie, we got an introduction to the emission scenarios known as Representative Concentration Pathways, or RCPs, which are used in the IPCC assessment reports. We learned that they aren't directly based on specific models of economic activity or the fossil fuel consumption that would go along with a given economic model, even though they're based on representative scenarios, and that can actually be really confusing. So separately then from these RCP emission scenarios, there are these shared socioeconomic pathways or SSPs, which are socioeconomic scenarios, and these RCPs and SSPs as I understand it, are actually independent. So let's start with just some clarification here on how this works. Why is our modeling designed this way? And shouldn't an emission scenario be the direct output of an SSP, not separate from it? Yeah, thanks. That's a really good question. And (laughs) it has been a long process to arrive where we are. And so we need to start with a little history lesson here, I think. Okay. If you go back to the late 90s, we had emission scenarios being set up the way you just described them. We start with the socioeconomics. We think how the world is going to evolve in terms of population, economy, globalization, people wanting to trade with each other or not, people want to cooperate with each other or not. And that determined the energy use and the emissions. And then you had the emission scenarios. Mm. That was the way the special report on emission scenarios, the SRS scenarios were done that came out around the year 2000. Okay. Now, that process is a really long, time-consuming process if you go through the full climate cycle, a full cycle of IPCC research. So this started with integrated assessment modelers developing those scenarios. That took you know, a few years, three years, five years to do that. Once these scenarios came out, they handed them over to the climate modelers. The emission scenarios were ran in the climate models. That took three or five years then it needs to get into the literature. So that's a period of five to seven years before only that step has happened. And only once you have the climate model output, the people that do impacts and adaptation and vulnerability research can use both the socioeconomic scenarios and the climate model output to say, well, what actually is the big deal with climate change by the end of the century? If temperatures go up by this, but people are rich as there are so many people globally. If you combine those two, And then before that research makes it into the literature, you also three to five years. So you're talking about a cycle of 10, 15 years at least, right? Right. So the SRS was developed late 90s that the IM researchers worked on it. Okay. The impact studies basically reached the literature around 2010, 2012, just in time for the latest assessment report, AR5. And so that took a really long time. And so by the mid 2000s, the IPCC said, well, maybe we should do things a little more efficiently here. And if we know more or less the range in literature of what these emission scenarios are going to be and expect that a new generation is not going to make them considerably higher or much lower, just we know that range that exists in literature, why don't we just take that range of literature, make a few representative scenarios through that range, hand those over, to the climate modelers, so they can do their runs in five or seven years. And then at the same time, 
the socioeconomic people, the impacts people, and the IAM modelers get together, develop new socioeconomic scenarios that are updated to where we are around the year 2010 at that time, and publish those by the time the climate modelers are done, and you can put it all together. So you're saying the IAMs and the RCPs and the SSPs were separated for the sake of time expediency. So it wouldn't take forever to get through a full cycle of modeling. Yes, that was the original idea. Wow. Now that didn't work out, of course. Okay. Because at the same time, there was a lot of discussion on whether the IPCC should be doing this kind of scenarios. Okay. The SRES was a special report from the IPCC. And basically the IPCC is only there to assess the scientific literature and write these assessment reports that need to go through government mandations or control, right. and then they get published, right? There was really a big debate about whether the IPCC should actually be developing future scenarios, whether it had a role in there. Okay. And so at the same time, at that same meeting where the parallel process was developed, they also said, well, we are going to ask the research community to take on this process to write those papers, to do that research. And then the IPCC, well, it can facilitate, it might organize some expert meetings. But in the end, the only role of the IPCC is to ask the research community to come up with these scenarios, to start such a process, and then to assess the literature later. Okay. Now that's a nice idea, but there was not really a research community for the development of socioeconomic scenarios. Okay. So the first stage went really well. So they developed the RCPs, handed them over to the climate modelers. The climate modelers do their thing. They did their runs. There was the coupled modeling comparison project five, CMIP five. It's all those results that we have seen that have been assessed in the last IPCC report. Mm -hmm. But then on the socioeconomic side, people were sort of looking at each other like, what are we supposed to do? And who is going to take the lead here? Is there any money to do anything to work on this? Mm. So... You had two research communities, the mitigation community and the impact community, that needed to figure out how to work together, talk to each other, come up with a framework for scenarios on the socioeconomic side that worked for both these communities. And so that took much longer than anticipated. Uh -huh. And while the original plan was that by the time the RCPs would have come out of the climate models, we would also have SSPs and we could tie the whole thing together and make it one nice product. Right. That really did not work. So the RCPs were there. They were assessed in the latest IPCC report. And the SSPs basically just before this summer, I think, the special issue came out with the emission scenarios. Oh, wow. And so that took about 10 years. So things did not really speed up in the end. Right. So there was an obvious justification for separating them, but there wasn't a plan for reintegrating them. Yeah, well, we're basically going into that stage for reintegrating them currently. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, that does explain some things. I guess before we move forward, we should explain what the SRES modeling is. What does that stand for? SRES was the special report on emission scenarios that came out in around 2000, 2001. It has these scenarios called A1, B1. A2, okay, so B2. that was kind of that the first generation of this modeling and then that was replaced by this RCP SSP strategy? Yes. Okay. All right. So, you know, when I finished the interview with Justin in episode 49, I had this perception that RCPs all assumed more coal consumption in the future than I think is realistic. 
but I also felt somewhat hopeful that the long-term scenarios, these SSPs, might offer what I would consider to be a more realistic view of the future. But since then, looking at those models a little more closely, I've looked at the emissions trends, and I just don't find them particularly realistic either. So how are these SSPs constructed? And we can talk in a minute, like, why I have issues with them. But let's just talk first, like, how are they constructed? What are the SSPs really supposed to represent? And and why do we need them? Like, how do we expect them to actually be used in these future IPCC assessments to inform climate policy? Yeah. That was four That's questions. It. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, let's start with what the SSPs actually yeah. are and what they are supposed to do, right? The SSPs serve two goals because they are developed by these two communities. So they serve research on mitigation, how we can avoid climate change. But at the same time, they serve research on adaptation and impacts, how bad the impacts of climate change are going to be depending on what the world looks like in the future. Okay. And so the communities came together and it already took a few years to set up a scenario framework that would work in that space. And sort of the overarching idea for the SSPs is that because they are meant to analyze mitigation and adaptation, the overarching idea is that they are supposed to describe futures in which the challenges to mitigation or to adaptation are high or low from socioeconomic drivers. Okay. So if you have high or low challenges to both mitigation and to adaptation, you can think of an axis space of two axes. On the one, you have high or low challenges to mitigation. On the other axis, you have high or low challenges to adaptation. And you put those together and you have four quadrants. Okay, yeah, right. So one quadrant is where you have low challenges to mitigation and low challenges to adaptation. Sort of the easy world for climate change. Right. There's not much to deal with. You can easily avoid it. And if it happens, you're in a position where you can easily deal with it. Right. You know, you move up to the other corner, you have high challenges to both. Right. And that's a really hard world where you, to deal with climate change because it's really hard to avoid it. And if it happens, you're actually going to be in real trouble because you're, for instance, you're really poor and you cannot deal with it. Right. Right. And then once you go sort of off the diagonal, you have futures where either one of the challenges dominates. So it can be really easy to mitigate climate change, but you have a hard time dealing with it if it happens. Or it's really hard to actually avoid it, but you're well equipped to deal with it. So that was the challenge space that was set up to frame these scenarios. Okay. And then they were just numbered, basically. So SSP1 is the easy world. Low challenges to both mitigation and adaptation. SSP2 is in the middle. SSP3 moves up to the high challenges to both mitigation adaptation. Then SSP4 is where you have low challenges for mitigation, but high for adaptation. So it's hard to adapt. Then SSP5 is it's hard to mitigate, but easy to adapt. Huh. Okay. I didn't realize that those things stood for. Okay. Yeah. And so now... So SSP1 is the easiest scenario and SSP3 is the hardest scenario. Yes. And then SSP 2, 4, and 5 are kind of somewhere in between. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, 2 was added because people were like, well, in the end, many users are going to use a middle-of-the-road scenario anyway, so why not just put it in there? Yeah, so you right. have these five, whereas it might also have been four initially. Okay. All right. Now, there are a few issues with this. So one is that you define the scenarios basically by outcome in this scenario space. Contrary to many earlier scenario 
processes or many other scenario processes where you define them based on how you think the world is going to diverge in the future based on drivers. Right. So you've got starting conditions and you've got drivers. Yeah. In this case, you've actually got outcomes. Yes. So you define them by the outcomes. Okay. And so you might develop a scenario that you think would fit in one of the quadrants, but then once you run it and you analyze it, might not be there, right? Right. The idea that you had beforehand doesn't match with the results of the scenario. Right. So that is a risk here. Okay. Now, if you imagine that challenge space, you can imagine many scenarios that sure. are in each of those, right? There are sure. many ways you can have low challenges to mitigation adaptation. Also, many ways in which the world can totally break down and it can be hard to mitigate and to adapt to climate change. Sure. Out of all those scenarios that you can imagine, there were five or one in each quadrant selected that we said, well, these are going to be the shared socioeconomic pathways that we're going to try to use across a lot of climate change research to represent what happens in that quadrant mm -hmm. of this challenge space. Mm -hmm. So now that we know how the SSPs are constructed, and I guess what they're supposed to represent, how do we expect these to actually be used in the IPCC assessments and to inform climate policy? Yeah, so once we have selected one scenario for each of these quadrants, there was a whole process after that. One was write a narrative for each of these stories. Okay. Like what is that particular selected shared socioeconomic pathway going to look like? What is the future going to be sure. for that? So SSP1 is this sort of globalizing world, but everybody wants to work together. You have green growth. Everybody wants to have invests in green technologies. A big shift on the consumer side towards efficiency, preferences for cleaner fuels, also in developing countries sort of more than you would expect based on income. Mm -hmm. Also reaching sustainable development goals, you know, access to sanitation, access to, to all kinds of services for poor and rural communities that would improve their living standards by a lot. Okay. And so that was sort of the description of SSP. Okay. So we're talking SSP1 now, right? Yes. That's only so, SSP1. so within SSP1, this green growth strategy, you've actually got development continuing in the developing world, even as the world is decarbonizing. Yes. Okay. And rapidly. Okay. Yeah. You know, SSP3, the other end, this is sort of a world that breaks down. People building walls, people don't want to work together between countries, people don't want mm. immigration, don't want to do cooperative research projects. So much of the research and development also halts. Cooperation on climate policy is nowhere to be seen. People jump off the, <laughs> the Paris Accord, for instance. Right. And okay. that, in such a world, it's much harder to, first of all, mitigate. But also, if you don't reach the welfare levels... Or if poor people don't reach the levels of access to services and sanitation and communication services that they can actually deal with such impacts and gain a living, you might have large swaths of people that are really vulnerable to big changes in the climate. Right. So do we expect policy then to, I don't know, look at these scenarios and say, oh, we're tending toward SSP3 now, or we're tending toward SSP4, and so we need to do these things? Or is it just an indicator or... It's an like, how do we actually use this? Thing? Yeah. The thing is, if you make scenarios for the really long-term future, a lot of your methodologies break down because anything probabilistic doesn't really work when you want to go 50 or 100 years out. Right. Based on what we know of the current world, you're always extrapolating yeah, some trends. Uncertainty just builds over time. Yes. Right. And so your cone of uncertainty is going to explode mm -hmm. and your median might make no sense because it's just based on what's currently the trend where the right. world is heading, right? So that is where this narrative, this storyline method came in. It was also used in earlier, many long-term environmental scenario studies. 
And what it basically does is it extends trends that you see in the present day world, but then say, well, what if this particular trend or this particular driving force shapes the world for another 50 or 100 years? You end up in a really extreme place. Right. Because it's really like, well, SSP3 is like having Trump for another 100 years, right? Okay. Basically. Yeah. And then all the countries having their own Trumps. Right, right. And SSP1 is where you all want to sort of work together and keep making the world a happy, a world full uh, rich of place and, or something. Yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Although we don't know how he's going to turn out, right? But it's a little early to grant him that. <laughs> a little bit like giving Obama the Nobel Peace Prize. Right, first, yeah, a little bit. But yeah, and where you keep doing that for another hundred years, right? And then you can imagine that you end up in also in a really extreme space. And so it shapes sort of the space of what the future might look like. Mm -hmm. But it's not that any of these are likely by themselves or each of these stories very likely organizes their own backlash, right? And makes you move into another direction at some point. Right, That's how sure. the world works. So basically sure. in reality, you're sort of going back and forth between any of these. Every, and if these are trends day. that you see in, in the real world and you extrapolate them out incredibly far in the future. So how you use this is that you can evaluate your policies or your policy measures against these completely different futures. Mm -hmm. You can say, well, this measure might really work well if we are in an SSP1 future. That might be enough. You know, if we instigate a certain level of carbon tax or a certain technology support policy. And I see. Say, this might work really well. It might be enough, actually, if you think at the same time people are shifting diets, people don't eat as much meat as they might otherwise do. People have another preference for just having new and green technologies. Then smaller step policy measures might be enough. But if you're in a world that actually breaks down on these aspects, then this small proposed policy might be far from enough. And it might not do anything. Okay, so would it be fair to say then that the SSPs are a way of sort of evaluating a policy proposal? It's a way of saying... Your policy is tending in this direction. Yeah. Yeah. If you impose a policy like this, it's going to get you this much. If the rest of the world develops this way, it's only going to get you this much of mitigation if the world develops in that way. Or if you want to go from this baseline to a two degree scenario, it might be a small step from an SSP1 because there's already so much embedded in the way that you think the world is going to develop right. that it's a small step. If you have to come down from these high emission scenarios, it's a very big break that you need to take to get these emissions down to a two degree level. And for some of these, two degree was not attainable. If you have the world that doesn't want to work together, SSP3 basically could not make it to the RSP 2.6 level, so the two degree scenario. So this is where I'm still just a little bit confused as to how the RCPs and the SSPs work together to produce some sort of a scenario. Okay, well, quick summary of how the SSP process went. We first made those narratives. Yep. Then there were a few research groups around the world that worked on quantifying the drivers okay. for these emissions. So that is GDP projections, population projections, where the population goes to 12 billion or to eight, and right. then peaks and comes down. That right. makes a big difference. Yep. Urbanization projections, that's what my colleagues here actually did. And then those were handed off to the IM modelers, and they made energy and emission scenarios. Okay. Now, those 
the SSPs originally, if you only read the narrative, they are supposed to describe a world in which the climate problem does not exist. To be sort of a complete counterfactual story where you don't care about climate because climate change does not exist. And so how would the world develop if we had no climate problem? But can we imagine worlds that would have higher low challenges to deal with climate change right. from the socioeconomic perspective? And that analytical sense point, that's what you would want to do to figure out, well, what would happen if we had no climate problem? So now how much does it cost to avoid it now that we know that we have the problem? And on the other side, how much is it actually going to cost us if we have the impacts? And then you can sort of make a clean comparison from, well, what if the problem was not there? What does it cost if we avoid it? And what does it cost if we don't do anything? Mm-hmm. And then you can sort of, well, it's not a complete cost-benefit analysis, but you sort of comparison between the cost and the benefits of climate policy and climate impacts. So that is the bigger picture. Okay. Now, at the end of that process, you had the IEMs, they had developed energy and emission scenarios for the baseline SSPs, and then they did RCP replications. So from each SSP baseline, without any climate mitigation, they went down, imposed policy measures, mostly carbon taxes, to get to the original RCP levels. So you go back to RCP 6, RCP 4.5, RCP 2.6. There's now a 3.4 level added in the middle as well, because that's for policy a lot more relevant, actually. Oh, okay. Yes. The original RCPs were really far apart because the bandwidth in climate models is to be able to make a distinction yeah. between two different emission scenarios in a climate model. Right. You need about two watts per square meter difference to make a, a significant distinction gotcha. in climate models. Gotcha. And so that is why the cut that people made originally for the RCPs through this is such big steps. I was wondering about that. (laughs) Yeah, and that actually was an issue on the policy side because, you know, mitigation researchers have been running these 450, 550, 650, basically, scenarios, you know, 2.6 watts per square meters, 3.7 watts per square meters, 4.5, because policy doesn't immediately jump in these big chunks, right? It's not that if we miss the two degree target, we are immediately going to end up in RCP 4.5. Yeah, because in between there's nothing we can do, right? Right. That's not how the world works. (laughs) Right. You know, you might just just miss it. (laughs) Right. And then still come down and it might still be okay or reasonable. Maybe you wind up at RCP 2.8 or something. Yeah. And that's, of course, yeah. Right. It's certainly not a prescriptive thing, right? Right. It's it's only a research tool. Yeah. Okay. All right. So those are just benchmarks. Yeah. And then so the the emission scenarios were reproduced to the RCP levels. So now there is, if you go to the special issue on the SSPs, you have papers describing each baseline SSP, what it means for energy use and emissions. And And, then- So that's the narrative with no climate policy assumed. Yes. Okay. And no impact assumed. Right, okay. And then impose climate policy to go to the levels of the RCPs. Okay. So- and then go you to can 4.5, measure 2.6. Then you can use those to measure impacts, yes. Okay. So that's actually the phase that's now starting, where impact researchers are taking the climate model outputs, taking these SSBs, and start looking to the impacts. I see. So it really takes a combination of an SSP and an RCP to give you a complete picture of an emissions scenario. Yes. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are usually at least an hour long. 
Subscribers also enjoy other features, like our new transcript control, which allows you to search or click in the text or the audio player to jump to that point in the audio and the transcript. Subscribers also have access to our extensive show notes, with links to all the research resources and news items for each episode. In the future, we hope to offer even more value to our subscribers. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and join. Annual subscriptions are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are also available. It's like subscribing to your favorite magazine or newspaper, but we prefer to think of it as buying us a pint once a month just as a way of saying thanks. And if you're an educator thinking that you'd like to make the Energy Transition Show available to your students, just drop an email to me, chris at energytransitionshow.com, and we'll get you set up. Several university classes have already taken advantage of our unbeatable educational discount, and we'd love to make the show available to more smart young students interested in energy transition and climate change. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. So please join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item one, you may recall that in the postscript to my interview with Alex Klass in episode 50, I mused that if it were so inclined, a state government might try to figure out novel ways of using the Dormant Commerce Clause to force states to buy coal power exports, perhaps as a part of Trump's campaign to put coal on life support. Well, it's 2017, so guess what? West Virginia Governor Jim Justice has proposed a federal incentive that would pay utilities $15 a ton for burning coal that comes from mines in West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Virginia, Kentucky, and Tennessee. Doing so, he argued, would boost homeland security and help safeguard the eastern power grid against disruptions like bombings of pipelines or bridges used to transport natural gas or western coal. That's right. Burn coal for homeland security. So first of all, that's a transparently ridiculous play for a coal subsidy, and I can't imagine what it would take for that to clear the legislative and regulatory hurdles it would face. And no, I don't take it seriously. But the governor says that Trump is, quote, really interested in the idea because 2017. Second, I think the idea could very well run afoul of the Commerce Clause, not to mention open up a whole can of worms where every state could come up with some justification for subsidy for its own special energy resources under the rubric of national security. Oh, and you know another kind of power that supports homeland security and isn't at risk of being bombed, Governor Justice? Rooftop solar. Item 2. A consortium led by Siemens Gamesa has won an auction to build a 1 gigawatt, that's 1,000 megawatts, wind farm in Turkey. According to a report... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.